0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Dr Paul Young, lead investigator for the recently released SPLIT trial, which sought to examine the role of buffered crystalloid solutions in the ICU. Paul Young, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's uh, good to be here. Thanks
1: for taking the time to talk to me.
0: Not at all. And um, it's a great opportunity to to talk about the split study, which has appeared just recently. It's worth reviewing some of the theoretical issues associated with normal saline and its potential or the potential benefits of buffered solutions. What are the problems that this study was uh, attempting to look at?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, I'd say the primary driver really was that previous study in JAMA, the UNO study, where there was before and after single centered design, there was a significant increase in the risk of renal complications and requirements for dialysis. Um, but from a sort of pathophysiological point of view, one of the mediators of tubuloglomerular feedback is the chloride composition in the distal tubule. And so when the chloride composition in the distal tubule goes up, the afferent arteriole constricts and the GFR goes down. So with saline having a chloride concentration of around one and a half times that of normal plasma, there's this concern that the high chloride content in saline may be reducing GFR and causing renal impairment. And there was some data from healthy volunteers showing that two litres of saline was capable of reducing renal cortical tissue perfusion and reducing renal artery blood flow of velocity, so it seemed like something that was important to uh, look into further.
0: The other issue with normal saline, of course is its effect on pH. Is that something that you looked at during the study as well as a background mechanism? Uh,
1: yes, so that is of course another potential uh, mechanism by which saline might cause adverse clinical consequences. One of the things about the split study is that we didn't collect a lot of biochemical data. The reason for that was that we had a very small budget. So we conducted the entire trial with a budget of 200,000 New Zealand dollars, which is around 100,000 US dollars, and enrolled uh, over 2,200 patients, which probably makes it the cheapest clinical trial ever conducted um, of that sort of size. But we did collect the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society um, adult patient database number, which we're going to map to the study data so that we can collect the pH data that are in that, that ANZIC's core adult patient database set. So we will have a subsequent study looking at the biochemical effects, namely the effects on sodium, potassium. Bicarbonate pH and CO2 of uh, the two study fluids in the first 24 hours in ICU, which of course was when the majority
0: of the fluid was administered. And is that intended to be released as a separate paper into the future?
1: Yeah, it is. So we haven't actually done the analyses yet. We're still uh, kind of doing the linkage between the two data sets to allow us to do that. But I think it's fair to say, really, that the Acid base effects of administering sodium chloride are known. There's no doubt that sodium chloride administration causes a mild, self-limiting hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. And I guess the question is whether that's a clinically important phenomenon or sort of a benign paraphenomenon.
0: Paul, with respect to the buffered uh, solutions, what's the evidence base prior to split uh, regarding their effect in clinical practice?
1: If you, if you sort of read the stuff that's in the on the internet and all the blog posts and things, you'd believe that there was a kind of overwhelming amount of evidence. But actually, when you look at it, the the evidence base that exists comparing balanced crystalloids to saline is pretty limited. Really, it's mainly... Before SPLIT, at least, I think it was almost exclusively observational studies looking at large databases, demonstrating associations between fluid use and outcomes, and some of those data were consistent with each other and some of them were contradictory. Probably the, the highest profile study was that before and after single-centre observational study from the Austin in Melbourne suggesting an increased risk of acute kidney injury and requirements for renal replacement therapy. But really, now this split study, I, I think it's fair to say, is the best evidence that we have available in the sense that it's uh, evidence from a randomised double-blind clinical trial with more than 2,000 patients in it. But I guess from my point of view, it is important to sort of emphasise that the split trial was designed as a feasibility study and uh, really a pilot with a bigger study in mind. And it helps make the case really for what will be the definitive randomised controlled trial comparing buffered crystalloid with saline.
0: So Paul, tell us about the split study, how it was designed and uh, what the intentions were at the start.
1: Sure. So the split study is a cluster crossover trial. So we we had four intensive care units, and each intensive care unit was assigned to a strategy of either using saline as their default intravenous fluid, or plasmalite as their intravenous default intravenous fluid for alternating seven-week blocks, and they did that for a total of 28 weeks. Um, so, so the purpose of the split study was to, first of all, obtain some data from. A randomised double-blind trial to look at the sort of safety of of sodium chloride and, and of saline and of Plasmalite, um, and really to rule out that very large and troubling signal that was there in the previous study, to obtain some data to inform sample size calculations for a definitive randomised controlled trial, and to pilot this methodology of using a cluster crossover trial where you randomise the entire intensive care unit to one fluid therapy or another.
0: Paul, tell us about that randomisation process, because it's not a traditional randomisation where patients are randomised on an individual basis. Can you tell us how this this works statistically?
1: I mean, in simple terms, what happens is that the intensive care units are randomised rather than the patient's, And then at the end, the analysis which is performed in the the JAMA study is in fact uh, no different to um, the analysis which would be performed if it was an individual patient randomised trial, except for the fact that there's a centre effect that goes into the analysis. That's perhaps one of the weaknesses of the the JAMA study. It's a kind of simple analysis for a cluster crossover trial because the clustering effects are important. And I guess what those clustering effects are are the variabilities that occur in the incidence of outcomes over time within units and between units. So that's an added variable that's important in, uh, I guess, determining your ability to detect an effect. It's kind of like the amount of noise that there is compared to the amount of signal that there is. And if there's a lot of noise happening over time, that is in the, the kind of split case that the incidence of acute kidney injury changes a lot with time then your ability to detect an effect of the intervention goes down.
0: Paul what were the results of the trial what did you find?
1: So the principal finding was that there was no difference in the incidence of acute kidney injury between the patients allocated to saline and the patients allocated to plasmolite. and in fact even when it was sort of distilled out to a serum creatinine, there was no no difference even in the serum creatinine between treatment groups. The, they were very similar. There was also no overall difference in mortality between the two groups, but we studied a very kind of low risk cohort of patients and the overall mortality that we observed was low and the overall incidence of uh, acute kidney injury was relatively low as well.
0: Paul, that's been the major commentary, I think uh, it's fair to say, surrounding split since it was released is two points that you referred to earlier on. The first being that um, that only two litres of fluid was administered on average to, to patients in the study. Uh, and there's been a perception that that isn't enough to potentially be generating the difference in chloride administration that we we thought might be causing harm. And the second being that the group that was studied were relatively uh, well, I guess, with um, most being a post-operative group with relatively few comorbidities. What's your response to that sort of commentary?
1: Oh, look, uh, I think that those comments are fair. I guess the counterpoint to those comments would be that if you looked at, look at the subgroups that got more fluid, so If you look at the subgroup of patients that had an Apache score of greater than or equal to 25, then that cohort of patients got a median of more than 4 litres of fluid, and 25% of them got more than 6.5 litres of fluid, Um, and the point estimate for renal failure in that subgroup of patients favoured saline. Similarly, the cardiac surgical patients who got a median of 3 litres of fluid, the point estimate again favoured saline. And I think uh, it was sort of biologically plausible that two litres of fluid would would, would have an effect because two litres of fluid had an effect in healthy volunteers on renal cortical tissue perfusion and, and GFR. So I accept entirely that the possibility of a significant effect on a cohort of patients who are sicker is not excluded, but the aim of this study was never to exclude such a, an effect. The aim of the study was to exclude significant toxicity in an all-comers population of the kind that appeared in, the, in to be there in the UNO study. I mean, I think it does that, and, and I think that the question of whether uh, it makes a difference in the really high-risk patients who get lots of fluid is only going to be answered by the subsequent trial and we're now in a good position to conduct that. One of the interesting sort of post-hoc analyses that hasn't been published, because it was designed only to sort of inform the design of the next phase of the study, is in a sick cohort of patients, that is the patients who stayed in the intensive care unit for more than 24 hours, excluding the sort of elective surgical patients, there was a numerically... Lower mortality rate in the in the plasmalite group, so around about four and a half percent lower in the um, plasmalite group, and that wasn't a statistically significant effect, but that's the uh, effect that we have used to power the definitive randomised controlled trial in a sick cohort.
0: Paul, the other comment that's been made is that without chloride or pH measurement being reported in the study, it's difficult to demonstrate that the two groups were indeed separate. Is that your belief? I I mean, I don't think that's necessarily
1: the case. I mean, the thing is that this is a sort of real-world trial, and it tells you what happens if you assign your entire intensive care unit to use one treatment or another, To clinically important outcomes and the answer is it doesn't look like anything happens so if that's the case then i guess i would uh, make the case that what happens to the biochemistry is irrelevant because the biochemistry is just a benign para phenomenon potentially Um, we will have those data from the acid base status at some time in the relatively near future but but even without having seen those data, I can predict that the effect will be probably no difference in the pH because the c o two will go down, and the bicarb will be one or two millimoles lower in the saline group I would guess. but you know I, as I say, I, I totally accept the point that this doesn't tell you necessarily what happens to patients who get ten litres of fluid resuscitation that may be important and and another factor, of course, is that in the split study, the predominant pre randomization fluid that was used was a buffered crystalloid. So most of the patients had received fluid before they were enrolled in the study, and, and around two-thirds of that fluid was Plasmalite. So if they'd all been pre-loaded with saline and then randomised to get more saline, then the result might have been different. I, I don't know.
0: Paul, one of the more interesting parts of this, uh, of your plan, was the intention to conduct a post-study survey regarding clinicians' use on what fluid had been administered. Can you tell me why you did that and uh, what the impact of that was? Yeah, well, I thought it was important
1: when we'd randomised the entire intensive care unit for a block of time to have some assessment of whether the blinding was effective Because you can sort of imagine that if you're looking after patients for blocks of seven weeks at a time, that you might start after time to be able to tell from the biochemistry which fluid is which and be pretty confident that you were right, I guess. Now, as it turned out, people did guess correctly more times than you would expect based on uh, chance. But they weren't fantastic at guessing the right answer. Um, now, I can't remember what the answer, what the proportion was. I think it might have been around two-thirds of the people correctly guessed which fluid was which. So, I mean, that that does suggest that the biochemical effects are not profound, but another factor is that in, in my intensive care unit, for example, uh, we don't routinely monitor the chloride, so we we wouldn't have been able to you know, tell which group was which by looking at the serum chloride concentration because we don't have that available to us.
0: Paul, as you say, this is a, a tremendous achievement to be able to perform this study at the cost that you managed to achieve it. Um, where to from here? What information have you got from here and where does it go in the next phase of this journey? Well, look,
1: um, we are planning on conducting an 8,800 patient randomised controlled trial with a primary endpoint of day 90 mortality, and we're hoping that that trial will get up and running in the next 12 to 18 months. So that'll be essentially looking at a population of patients who are uh, in the intensive care unit, sick enough to not be expected to be able to eat anything uh, the day after tomorrow, and in need of fluid resuscitation, based on the same criteria that we used in the, the SAFE study and the CHEST study. So this is a cohort of patients that has a baseline mortality rate of around about 23%, and we will be powered to detect a relative risk reduction in mortality of 12.5%, which is what was observed in the overall cohort in the split study in terms of mortality in favour of plasmolite.
0: Paul, the last question that I had for you was on the issue of opt-out consent which was employed in the split trial. Did you uh, encounter any difficulties in in, uh, implementing that strategy and is that widely used in the the medical literature at this point?
1: Yeah, look, I guess um, that's an interesting question. I mean, it it is a strategy that has been used for other intensive care trials before. The ethics committee, I think, in New Zealand approved it because we were in a situation where... In the pre-study phase, the use of saline and plasmalite in intensive care in the intensive cares was geographically determined. So, in Christchurch intensive care unit, they were using saline predominantly, and in Wellington, we were using plasmalite predominantly. And we were essentially planning on randomising by geography. So we were really planning on doing what was already happening. And the protocol for the study was actually about default fluid rather than about the individual fluid that the patient received. So if a particular fluid was indicated for one patient or another within the study, then it was allowable within protocol to use whatever fluid was appropriate. And so I think the study was deemed to be very low risk, um, and we were randomizing at the Level of the intensive care unit, rather than at the level of the individual patient, and uh, providing people with the opportunity to opt out of use of information of their information if they they so chose, and relatively few people actually chose to to opt out. Yeah. So I mean, I think uh, it's important, and I think uh, for comparative effectiveness research, the way in which consent models operate is an important consideration that does need further thought and discussion, really, I think, because a trial like this one, a large-scale comparative effectiveness trial that sort of turns pseudo-randomised treatment into randomised treatment and provides really high-level evidence in a really short space of time seems to me to be far more ethical than allowing people to continue to receive random treatment based on which hospital they're admitted
0: to. Paul, thank you very much for your time and congratulations once again on achieving a great achievement. This study done on a a relatively small budget is a great advance for our specialty. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, Todd. Great talking. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org/icriticalcare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcasts, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser.
2: Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Todd Fraser, M.D., is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a Director of Intensive Care at Mackay Base Hospital in Queensland, Regional Director of Training for CareFlight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses, and instructional video. The Eye critical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.